What does all the news about fiduciaries have to do with benefit advisors? We'll find out on this episode of Shift Shapers. Change either paralyzes or energizes. The choice is yours. You're listening to the Shift Shapers podcast. You're about to learn firsthand from businesses and entrepreneurs who have successfully shaped the shifts in their industries. Get ready to become the change that you want to see. Here's your host and chief transformation strategist, David Saltzman. This episode of the Shift Shapers podcast is brought to you by Captivated Health, a captive insurance arrangement designed specifically for educational institutions. If you have clients in that vertical, you know the healthcare deck has been stacked against them. Today, Captivated Health offers the stability, control, and savings they've been waiting for. For more information, go to www.captivatedhealth.com or click on the company logo on the Shift Shapers website. How can you be the first to know about each week's podcast and get on the list for special listener-only content? It's simple. Go to shiftshapersonline.com and click the subscribe button. On this episode of Shift Shapers, we're pleased to welcome back Adam Russo. Adam is an attorney, and as some of you may remember from the first interview we did with Adam quite some time ago, he is also CEO of the FIA Group. So he's a friend of the program. We're pleased to welcome him back. Today, we're going to discuss a couple of topics that I think are of particular interest to benefit advisors, and they're both surrounding what is way more than a four-letter word, fiduciary. With that table set like that, welcome back, Adam. Hey, great to be here. Thank you. So let's start with the low-hanging fruit because there are a lot of folks who are new to this area. What is a fiduciary? Well, it's a it's a great question because I tell you that that's a tough question to answer, especially in this day and age. To make it simple for the layperson, I would argue that a fiduciary is someone that has a level of burden. They have responsibility to take care of something, whatever that might be. They have, you know, my daughter has a fiduciary duty to keep her room clean. My, you know, I have a fiduciary duty to make sure that I come to work every day and, and leave at work at night and make sure I do a good job. And in our world, many times people will say that you have a fiduciary duty to be prudent with plan assets. You got to be smart about how you spend your money. You have to be prudent. You can't just be clumsy. You have to take responsibility. So that's how I would look at the definition of what a fiduciary is, I would also look at it as it's someone who has knowledge or a level of expertise of some type that is being held responsible or looked upon as being held responsible for some type of duty or some type of action. So that's a layman's way to say it. The problem right. is it's a very loose term that many people throw around nowadays. It's, you know, it's just being thrown out. I would say it's being thrown around way too much nowadays than it needs to be. And with that said, it's still very much in the news. Back on April 6th, after five years of backing and forthing and whatnot, the DOL fiduciary rule was released. Now, it's interesting because the National Law Review says it levels the playing field for retirement investors. So how does this spill over into benefits, folks? Well, it's funny you say that, right? For years, I've been waiting for, in the benefits world, for someone to argue that a plan administrator, okay, or a plan sponsor, or an advisor, whoever it might be, is being held liable for a breach of a fiduciary duty. And you never hear it. If you actually Google the word fiduciary breach, ERISA, all you see are 401k litigation. It's someone suing their you know, financial advisor for mismanaging their 401k plan or their pension plan. 
You don't see anyone ever being sued for mismanaging their health plan. And why is that? It's a pretty interesting take. So why is it that you see this all in the financial sector, the 401ks, your pension plans, and so forth, but on the healthcare sector, people spend money, there's no accountability, and you just see money thrown around all over the place. It's so funny. You look at, let's say, a union plan, all right, a self-funded union plan where the employee benefits, the employees pay every week into their benefit plan, and they have co-pays, deductibles, and so forth. And as these co-pays and deductibles continue to rise, you never have pushback from any member or any union member saying, I'm putting all this money into my health plan. What have you been doing with my money? Who is looking at the actual bill to see why a $400,000 charge was paid by the plan? Were they being a fiduciary? Were they being prudent to see if that money should have been spent? Was it a reasonable charge in the first place? Who's auditing all these claims? So what the funny thing is, if you talk to guys at Wall Street, all the regulation and the duty and the diligence and the responsibility that you see in the 401ks and in the investment world, you don't see the same thing applied in the health plans. And in my opinion, it should be applied in both. Again, another long answer to a very simple question. I'm sorry. No, no, no. When when you say ERISA, there are not any simple answers. I'm convinced. I, you know, I, you and I have been at this a long time, but it, it's not just Taft-Hartley plans that need to worry about this stuff, is it? No, of course not. I just use that as an example because, again, most if you think of a Taft-Hartley plan, they're larger, they're more apt to be self-funded. But self-funding, you know, now and these ERISA plans. It's smaller and smaller groups all the time. And I think we see that directly because of the ACA expansion and the fact that now employers have to offer health insurance benefits or at least offer their employees to the exchanges. So we're seeing a big growth. I think the numbers that I saw were 5 million new lives in self-funding in 2015. So there are a lot more plans now who have never been a fiduciary, never thought of this word, never been a plan sponsor, let's say. Who don't realize, yeah, sure, there's cost containment opportunities, there's opportunities to incentivize your employees, there's opportunities to customize your plan design. That's all great stuff. But they don't realize there's also a duty, a fiduciary duty, a responsibility to actually take care of your health plan and know what you're doing with your plan and managing the fund, funds, putting those funds in trusts. So as smaller and smaller groups begin to look at self-funding for the first time, they're realizing they have a whole new breadth of responsibility they never had before. Well, and the, the market's expanding. I mean, you're, to your point, we're seeing new modalities where smaller and smaller groups are starting to touch self-funding. I think in terms of the fiduciary responsibility and some of the difficult choices that fiduciaries are called on to make, I don't know. I'd like your take. It seems to me that it would be more difficult to do or more challenging for somebody to do in a smaller group because, in a, you know, if you've got a 5,000 life group, you don't know all the employees. You're making decisions and you're in the ivory tower or wherever you are. But in a smaller group, you're everybody's family. Does it become right. more difficult in that kind of a setting? Is that your experience too? No question. That's the greatest question. Great question. Great hypothetical. Let's just use that. If you have 5,000 employees, one, right, you don't know all the employees. Okay. You also have experts within your organization that can make decisions. You have the money to hire outside counsel or outside experts or advisors to help you make claim determinations, right? Or just at least get a legal opinion as to one. If you have 30, 40, 50 employees, you probably know them all. Okay. A claim comes in your shop, knock on wood, I apologize. One of your employee's daughter has a rare form of cancer. 
and they are doing some experimental and investigational treatment on the daughter. The claim comes in, and you have to decide whether that claim is covered or not. That's a tough answer, regardless of whether or not you even know that employee. Let's say you don't even know them. That's someone in your office who works for you, who's been there for 10 years, and their daughter's going through something that's horrific, that no one would ever want on their worst enemy. And you have to make a decision for the benefit of all the employees, not just, it's not your money, it's all the employees' contributions as to whether or not that particular procedure, that treatment strategy is covered under the plan. That's a hard thing to have to do. So obviously the bigger the organization, the further you're at arm's length from the, from the people, you have experts that you can hire, but those smaller and smaller groups, sure, they have less of these types of claims just because they don't have the same number of people. But when these claims come up, it is very hard for them to make these decisions. And typically what will happen is the employer will turn to their broker or turn to their administrator and say, hey, I hired you as the expert. You tell me what I should do. Should I pay this claim or shouldn't I? And that's when a TPA, a broker, an insurer is going to turn around and go, hold on. That's not what we signed up for. You agreed that you're the fiduciary, that you make these claim decisions. So these gray area calls, they're yours. We can't make that call for you because we're not the fiduciary. And I think that's why it's interesting. We've seen so many more court cases now, so many more of these appeals, so many more situations nowadays than we ever did before where these decisions are being made by the wrong entities or people who don't think they're the fiduciary because they walk like one and act like one end up becoming a fiduciary in the long run, regardless of what their contract might say. Or people who don't understand that even if a plan specifically excludes experimental treatments, if they say yes to Sally because Sally's a long-term employee, under ERISA, they've created a precedent and they've just de facto change their plan document. Here's the bottom line. I had this situation happen to me. Large hotel, resort, okay? The son of one of the VPs at the resort was drinking and driving. Crashes. $100,000 in medical bills. They all sit around a table and go, well, this is the VP's son. We're going to pay the claim. And I go, okay, but I want you to take a step back. If instead of it being the VP's son for the hotel chain, now let's pretend that this was the maid, her son. So the cleaning woman who cleans the rooms at the hotel, now it's her son that was drinking and driving, $100,000 in claims. Would you be paying these claims or not? And the answer to that question, as we all know, is no. So you're right. When you set precedent, you now, again, other people have to find out about it, right? But at the end of the day, if you pay a claim for one person and the same fact scenario would come again in the future and don't pay those claims for this other individual, now you have bigger problems. So, you know, at the end of the day, you don't want to set precedent. You want to make sure that you're consistent with your claim decisions. And even though it's hard for many companies to do, you can't look at or you shouldn't look at what position those employees hold in your organization when making these determinations. And now a word from our sponsor. Captivated Health is a single source solution for your clients and prospects who are in the education vertical. The founders of Captivated Health have nearly 20 years' experience working with educational institutions, and over that time, they've developed a keen understanding of the unique problems these clients experience. Frustrated by a lack of control, the unpredictability of ever-increasing healthcare costs, 
and the pressures and regulations of the Affordable Care Act, these groups have been adrift in the fully insured commercial marketplace until now. Captivated Health has built a program that solves those problems, and it does so with virtually no disruption to faculty and staff while saving clients millions of dollars. We wanted you to be among the first to know that Captivated Health is building a national distribution partner network so you can bring this cutting-edge solution to the educational clients you advise. To learn more about the Captivated Health solution, go to their website at www.captivatedhealth.com or click on their logo on the Shift Shapers website. And now, back to our interview. And while some people may think that those are kind of rare or strange examples, there are other things in plans that are that happen every day. And one of them, especially, you know, when I was running TPA down in Miami, we had loads of people who scuba dived or people who jumped out of airplanes. And a lot of plans have provisions that preclude claims from being paid when the person gets hurt in the course of a dangerous activity or a recreational activity. That comes up every day, doesn't it? We call them the hazardous activity exclusion. This is something that, again, what's hazardous to you in Miami may not be hazardous to someone, let's say, in North Dakota. So a great great example, okay? Horseback riding. Now, I'm assuming if I'm a self-funded employer in downtown Boston, I look at my employees and they all live downtown. Horseback riding in downtown Boston is probably looked upon by all the people that work there as a hazardous activity, okay? You take that same plan, you put them in South Dakota, They're riding their horses to work. Now, I'm just making that up, right? But you see my point? Water, jet skiing. If you're in Miami, maybe jet skiing, people that work in Miami and live in Miami go, well, you know what? That's what we do on the weekends. We like to jet ski. It's not a hazardous activity. But that would be a hazardous activity, let's say, in Iowa, where there is no ocean, where there are no lakes around. The point being, you have to understand what that means to your organization. And how do you spell that out? You spell that out within the terms of the plan design. That's where you have to set that forth. You can't have it that, well, if Jeff is skydiving, they're excluded. But if Joe's skydiving, we're going to cover those claims. By far, daily basis, we get these questions all the time. And the thing is, you can't list them all, right? All right, has activity includes bungee jumping, skydiving. You can't list them all. I mean, there's not enough. You, you would see 10,000 action movies and see 10,000 different has activities. The key is to be consistent in your claim decisions, keep a history of the decisions that you make, and make sure that you're consistent going forward as well. Well, and you know, to the point of the whole plan document, if you were to list specific things that were excluded, it's a very simple jump to say those things which are not expressly prohibited are by virtue of the fact that they're not prohibited, included and compensable. Bingo. You should be a lawyer. That's pretty impressive. Get the claim paid that way. Thank you. I have enough problems, but I appreciate that. <laughs> um, so here's here's where we come down to, Adam. It's a gray, uncomfortable area. It creates liability. It creates the potential for an ongoing tail and, not to mention, huge claims amount. So I'm one of these newer, smaller groups. I know everybody in my shop. I hired everyone personally. I don't want to make these kinds of decisions. Am I stuck? No. Outsource it. Here's the funny thing. I never forget the day. You know, you had those days, those, those epiphany moments, right? It's like in a movie when they start playing the orchestra music in the background. I'm on a conference call. Just picture the people. The broker's on the phone. The administrator's on the phone. The stop-loss carrier's on the phone. And the employer's on the phone. And so am I. I'm the lawyer. And there's a claim decision. Nobody wants to make the decision. 
Everyone on that phone call is trying to get someone else to say what, whether or not the claim is payable. The employer is on the phone and looks at, says to the TPA, you've been my administrator for 20 years. I pay you to be the expert. You tell me whether this is payable. The broker, same thing. You tell me if this is payable. Everyone is pointing their fingers at the other party to help them make that decision. Then they turn to the stop-loss carrier and go, hey, Mr. Stop-loss carrier, if we pay these claims, will you reimburse us? Stop-loss carrier says, I'm not a fiduciary. I can't make that call for you. And I sat there and I said, why don't I just make this decision for these people, take on this risk, and get paid to do so? Why make this a pain point in our industry? And instead, why don't we make this an offer, a service that administrators can offer, brokers can offer, to employers at large, for the very reasons you brought up? All these claim decisions are so hard, just outsource them. And what we're realizing nowadays is any broker out there that's listening, that can still considers themselves a broker, by definition, a broker, in layman's terms, it's someone who brings two parties or parties together to make a deal, okay? There are no brokers anymore in healthcare. Every single broker nowadays is really an advisor. You are advising your clients what to do, especially when it comes to the ACA and all these rules and regulations you have on both a state and federal level. Your clients are looking to you for advice. So you're a broker, you're really an advisor, and if you're an advisor, you're looked upon as being an expert. And if you're looked upon as being an expert, you are now a fiduciary. So every broker, I can make an argument, is really a fiduciary. So if their plan, if their client does decide to pay a claim and the stop-loss carrier doesn't want to reimburse that claim, guess what? That broker is going to be sued as a fiduciary for a breach of fiduciary duty. So there's no question in my mind, now if ever, is the time, especially as we see smaller and smaller groups, especially as we see more litigation, don't forget, we now have unlimited appeals. When you have a final level internal appeal, the employer has to pay for the patient's external independent review. There is no reason for an employee not to file for an external IRO, especially when they're not paying for it. So you see more claims going through the appeals process, more litigation, more confusion as to the law, more and more experimental drugs out there in operations and procedures. If there was ever a time to get rid of the fiduciary duty but still enjoy the other benefits of self-funding, now is the time. So a question that I know some folks in our audience are going to be asking is, okay, I don't deal in self-insured plans at the present time. Does this new DOL ruling, does this fiduciary rule affect me? If I'm not dealing, Adam, in, in ERISA plans, is it still something I need to worry about? I would say yes. Obviously, a lot less than you would if you were dealing in the ERISA world. If you're talking about a fully insured plan, my argument, my only argument would be, if you have a fully insured plan that you're paying premiums on, there is still some duty, whether through the DOL audits or not, there is still a duty of responsibility to be prudent. So ensuring that you have plan documents, SPDs, is a great one. Right now, when D the DOL is doing audits, as you all know, all across the country, the number one problem that the DOL is uncovering is the fact that a plan doesn't have a plan document. Think about that. We're not even talking about mistakes in the plan or the language is wrong, it's not compliant. There is no plan. So ultimately, if I'm a broker, don't I have a responsibility to at least know that my client actually has a plan document, has a certificate, can actually look at an SBC to see what their co-pays, deductibles, and coverage limitations are? 
So I would say there's much less of a concern, but there is still definitely a concern for the reasons I just brought forward. So last question to wrap up. If a broker is now offering or starting to offer self-insured solutions because of where ACAs put clients and a variety of other things, but they've never been in this part of the industry before, how do they learn? How would you suggest that they come up to speed on on what's necessary and, and how they need to act in order to act as a proper fiduciary? The biggest problem that we have in our industry now is a growth problem. The fact that we see so much growth in the self-funded space, it brings in a lot of people who've never been in this world before. So they may be using terminology that doesn't belong in this industry. They're practicing or promising or trying to do things that they've never tried to do before. And that's what it's called, in my opinion, it's growing pains. There are some great industry areas or associations. Right now, you can go to SIA, the Self-Insurance Institute of America. SIA.org is a great has a, is a great resource. I'm actually on the board of directors at SIA. Great resource on a state and federal level from a standpoint of understanding self-funding, understanding the different elements, great conferences, and so forth. Then you have the HCAA, which is another great organization that is more about education, self-funding certification, another great organization with great detail and information related to self-funding. Obviously, my company, FIA Group, our website is all based on everything that we do here at FIA Group, it's fiagroup.com, is based on growing the self-funded marketplace. We, Our mission, our goal is to increase the number of employers that offer health insurance benefits to their employees. It's what makes America different and what's what makes America great. That is a big part of our emphasis and our goal and our mission to reduce the cost of healthcare. So there's a lot of areas up there to get information. What I would also tell you, if you're a broker, NAHU, the National Association of Health Underwriters, has done a lot more in regards to educating their people in relation to the benefits of self-funding, understanding the self-insurance industry. So also listening to podcasts like yours. I mean, you have some great information on there from other people in the self-funded world because the difference between self-funding and normal, basic, you know, what people think of as health insurance is that where there are a lot of savings opportunities and there's a lot more innovation and there's a lot more just imagination, you could do a lot more. It's also a lot harder to do. It's not just paying a premium every month. It's just much harder. So there's a lot more to it. And you obviously have to learn a lot before you can really start becoming an expert and offering these services to your clients. And we'll we'll link to all of those organizations in the show notes for this episode. Adam Russo, CEO of the FIA Group. Adam, thanks again for coming back and sharing your expertise on a subject I know is of, of real interest and very timely to our listeners. Well, thank you very much for the opportunity and uh, have a great day. The Shift Shapers podcast is a production of Strategic Vision Publishing and David Saltzman. This podcast may not be reproduced in any form, in whole or in part, without the express written permission of the producers. All rights reserved.